So it's really valuable real estate and you have 2,600 characters at your disposal to make that really work. So my three elements of a really good summary is hook your reader in that first line. The rule in PR and journalism is hook them in with a good lead, right? So hook them in, captivate their attention so they'll want to read more. Don't start out with, I've been in the video production industry for 20 years and blah, blah, blah. Nobody cares. I better go check my profile. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Grounded Content Podcast, where advertising, marketing, and content get real. I'm your host, Marian Abrams. Today on the show, I talk to Kate Payne, the founder of Standing Out Online. Kate is a LinkedIn expert, and she'll talk about some solid, tactical steps you can take to improve your performance on LinkedIn and drive real business connections. We'll also talk about bigger picture foundational questions about how you present yourself online, how to be comfortable on camera, and where the lines are between ethical and manipulative. You can find more episodes of the Grounded Content Podcast at my website at madmotion.com slash groundedpodcast. And there's a form there to leave me a message, reach out with a question, suggest a guest, or give me any kind of feedback. So Kate, thank you so much for coming to join me on Grounded Content. This is a really fun one because I've known Kate and we've crossed paths over the years She has a really broad background, which I think will make this a great discussion about some of the bigger picture philosophical issues. Kate has worked as a videographer for news stations. She has worked in PR. And today she's one of the top LinkedIn experts. And so I'm hoping we can really talk about how we portray ourselves online and that kind of picture that we make and share some really solid tactics with the audience, but as always, then pull back and think about all of the ethics and the philosophy behind that. So welcome, Kate. Thanks so much for having me, Marianne. It's really nice to see you and catch up. Yeah. So I know before we started rolling, we were having a good catch up and I had to like remember that we were doing this for the podcast. So I wanted to start by asking you if you think your work in news stations as a videographer and then in PR how they have helped you kind of develop an understanding of what you do now. You know, nobody has ever asked me that before, but I've always thought about it. So thank you for asking. You know, it's kind of funny. It actually makes me think back. We were very fortunate. My two siblings and I, my parents paid for our college education. And when I first went away to college, I didn't do very well. I was an English major. I really wanted to be a journalism video production major, but my father was like, you're not going to make any money in that. So no. Then when I got into the English thing, didn't do well and switched schools. And I got an internship at the CBS Evening News for two years. He kind of went, oh, well, maybe uh, this is exactly what you need to be doing. And I feel like he always used to tease me. He's like, you're the only one of the three that stayed within their major. (laughs) Exactly. That's the beauty of television, right? Because it's everything. Yeah. So when I first started out in journalism and video production, I thought I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. I thought I wanted to be in front of the camera and reporting. And then once I got into the internship and I saw the sort of the production side, like from a producing standpoint, but also the production side with all the equipment and the lighting and everything, I was fascinated by that. So then I realized I didn't want to be in front of the camera. I wanted to be behind it. And I think a big part of that, which led to the PR side, was storytelling. We hear that in the marketing world about storytelling or brand story. But where I come from with storytelling from the standpoint of like how people present themselves online, like you said, is more of like 
making sure you're being authentic and sharing those parts of yourself that also share who you are as a human and reinforce who you are as a professional. I'm going to ask you kind of a different angle on this, just because I'm interested. If you had to boil it down in its essence, just visually, how do people present themselves visually in a way that's authentic? I think it's a matter of just being comfortable in your skin. I mean, Marion, you and I have worked together on projects in the past, but also, you know, whenever you were doing anything where you were producing something for a commercial or whatever, or a man in the street interview, everybody gets self-conscious because it's like all of a sudden the camera's there and then they're sort of like, I almost think that they're thinking, oh my God, how do I look? How do I present myself? Do I talk differently? And so I'm not sure if that's answering your question, but I think what it is, is like, you just need to be yourself. Yes, there's a camera there. And I think in some ways, maybe people are a little bit more comfortable in this day and age because of doing selfies and all of that stuff and seeing ourselves talking on Zoom, which like from a sensory experience is just bizarre to see ourselves talking to other people because that's never something we've seen unless we stood in a mirror. So I think the visual piece is that people are definitely feeling more comfortable. I think during this COVID era, for example, with the Zoom calls, people aren't feeling like they've got to put up on all their makeup or a suit and tie that they can show up in their yoga wear because I think it's, we've been nine months of this now. In some ways, I'm really happy about it because I think it's made us much more gracious and forgiving (laughs) on how we present ourselves. So I think what's cool about that is that if you're comfortable here, then people are really listening to your content and your message. And that's what's important. I have so many follow-up questions and we haven't even gotten into like the meat of the interview and what you do. So what do you tell people when they get self-conscious and they freeze? How do you break through that? Well, first, what I do is I just actually have them just breathe. I'm like, literally like, just like take your shoulders up and then drop them down and just breathe. And just remember that this is not something that has to be polished and perfect. It just needs to be good enough. And I think when you tell people that they kind of just go, oh, okay, (laughs) because it's more about what you have to say. People are going to be more interested in your expertise on something or your thought leadership on a certain thing or your opinion or your insights. And so focus on what you're saying, but not on how you're looking. So let's jump forward to where you're at now in LinkedIn. There's probably some basic tactics, some basic big picture things that people should know about being in LinkedIn. One of the things I've noticed in the last six months is it's gotten a lot busier and I think in some ways less authentic. Well, I'd say yes and no. So it's definitely gotten busier for sure. There's a lot more from the side of being also busy, busy in a good way, because I think a lot of people are home. And so they also know that LinkedIn is the only online professional network. So I think if people are looking for jobs or looking to network professionally, they know they need to be there. So they've upped their game, so to speak. They've upped their activity. That is a good thing because that's what it's for. But what's also happened is that there's a lot more people being really salesy on LinkedIn. So I'm sure everybody has noticed that they're getting these connections to invite, you know, to connect on LinkedIn. And then they don't maybe send you a personal message, or if they do send you a personal message, which is a good thing, but you don't be salesy in your first message. There are a lot of those people actually are using third-party apps that are automated and those go against LinkedIn's terms of service. So you should not be using them. There are all kinds. There's linked helper, there's meet Edward, there's a whole bunch of them. And they all basically scrape data. And so that's why they go against LinkedIn's terms of service. So if you're receiving any of those, they're probably automated. And that means people are, guess what, not being authentic. 
So the best practice is if you're going to connect with people on LinkedIn, do send an invitation and say, hey, would love to connect on LinkedIn. I see we have five mutual connections or I've read your blog or I saw you on somebody's Facebook Live or I follow you online or whatever and say, I would love to be connected on LinkedIn. That's how you make an introduction. And that's being real. And that's also very manual. So, you know, you can't take shortcuts on LinkedIn. And I'm glad that LinkedIn does that. And they are policing it. And it still needs to be better because there's a lot of people who are still selling out of the gate and either don't respond. And if you do respond, like I do, if I get tweaked enough, it's all respond with what I call a LinkedIn public service announcement, basically saying, you know what? You doing what you just did is the equivalent of knocking on my door and I open and you walk right into my living room without even being invited and you haven't earned the right to do that with me. It's so funny. um, There've been so many analogies because I talk about this idea of ethics and marketing and there've been so many analogies, uh, different ones of this same idea from, you know, date rape to the vending machine that looks beautiful on the outside and is full of SHIT or whatever it is. But yeah, the knocking on the door and just barging in. So stepping back from the what people shouldn't do, let's Mm -hmm. talk about what people should do in terms of, I suspect a lot of people especially if they are not you know, an entrepreneur, if there's somebody that maybe works in a marketing department or is a VP of marketing in a larger company or somebody who has some other job that they're not used to kind of constantly being out there, how do you guide someone to figure out what it is that's important about themselves or about their business to present? That seems like that's the hard part. It is the hard part, but it's actually... You just need to keep it simple. So something simple, it's not as hard, right? But it's hard because people just don't know how to come at it. So if I say you need to tell a nugget of your personal story to come across as authentic on LinkedIn, they're like, that sounds great. What do you mean? And how do I do that? So basically, when people go on LinkedIn, they know it's a professional network and they know they need to be professional. And I think some people take it so literally that they're so professional that they don't think they should let any of who they are as a person, their authentic side sort of like creep in a little bit because then some people will say, and they're right. Well, this isn't all about me. This is about me and my business. Nobody cares that I do such and such. And I'm like, you know, don't be so quick to assume when you go out networking, you know, before COVID, when we could be out at conferences and stuff, we would have a conversation with somebody, whether it was after hours or over a drink or just networking part of a conference. And we would just talk. So where are you from? Or what do you do? And you kind of warm up. It's a similar kind of thing that you want to do on LinkedIn. But whenever you talk about something that you do that people don't expect to hear, they remember that. So now you've made yourself sort of unforgettable because you've captivated their attention because it's not the usual, you know, where do you live and what's your job title? So when I suggest people to take care of their LinkedIn profile, I have what I call a three-part recipe like for the about section. So the about section used to be called the summary. It's the most read section of one's LinkedIn profile. And a lot of people ignore it, or they talk in the third person, or they cut and paste the objective from their resume or CV, or they just leave it blank because they don't know what to put there. So it's really valuable real estate. And you have 2,600 characters at your disposal to make that really work. So my three elements of a really good summary is hook your reader in that first line. The rule in PR and journalism is hook them in with a good lead, right? So hook them in, captivate their attention so they'll want to read more. Don't start out with, I've been in the video production industry for 20 years and blah, blah, blah. Nobody cares. I better go check my profile. (laughs) (laughs) 
but the thing is, is I don't want anybody to feel bad if that's what they've done. It's not that it's bad or wrong. It's just that it's formulaic. And we've all just sort of been taught to sort of like present ourselves in this little box. And what I'm inviting you to do is think of something that is a story that relates to your profession. So like with my LinkedIn profile, my first line is I've been an avid news junkie since I was in eighth grade. I love. I wanted to be the next Diane Sawyer on 60 Minutes. That's how I hook my reader in. It's only like four sentences, but it hooks people in. And then I realized, you know, as I went into video production, like I told you, I wanted to be behind the camera. And that's where I learned how to tell stories. And that's what I do today. I work with entrepreneurs and to help them tell their story. So it relates. This is such a good example of what people need to do, but you have the skill set. How do they figure out what that sentence is? So basically what I would do is I have like these 12 ideas to get you thinking of like, what's the one hook? You're only looking for like what I call a nugget of your personal story or your slice of life story. You're going to present it in maybe one or two short paragraphs at the beginning. And one of the things that most people do is think about like, why do you do what you do now? Like what made you do your career? So you could have been a political science major, right? You know, and gone through and then you went into that and you're like, oh, hate political science. Something happened in your life where all of a sudden you decided you wanted to work in a nonprofit helping with cancer research because maybe you had a relative who had had cancer and you saw what that did. And all of a sudden this became your passion and you wanted to do something else. So what's the story there? You could tell that little story of that in-between time. So that's kind of the easiest one is like, think about like, why do you do what you do now? And maybe you've been doing it all along, but there's a story there. A good example is a guy, you may even know him, David Blittersdorf, who's the CEO of All Earth Renewables, which is a wind and solar company. His history and background was in wind, and then now he's in solar. So at the beginning of his LinkedIn profile, he starts out with, I've been an energy guy my entire life. Since the age of 14, I powered my maple sugar house with bicycle parts and a light bulb. And when it worked, I was hooked. That's it. That. That's, That's the story. And then he goes into why renewable energy became a passion and a, a love of his, and he's been doing it forever. So I know you're great at guiding people through this, but <laughs> I don't think everybody has the ability. I mean, I think that takes a certain talent to come up with those kinds of hooks. It does. I mean, it's a part of why people work with me is because I think I just, you know, it's from my pull from my journalism background. I'm good at interviewing people and I can help you tease it out. But I can also teach people kind of how to do it on their own. And of course, if you're a good writer, it's easier to have happen, but maybe you know somebody who could help you. So anyway, that back to the three elements though. So you want to hook them in with that little nugget of your personal story. Segue into the second element, which is who you work with. Like who are the type of people you work with? So this is obviously if you have your own business or something. What's their pain point, all right? And then the third element is how you use one of like your skill sets to solve their problems so that you've shown who you are, who you work with, and what you do so that by the time somebody's read your about section, you've created an outcome-based profile like what you can do for me versus the blah, blah profile, (laughs) you know, the biography type. And use first person, use conversational, like talk the way you would talk in person. You know, you don't need to like, package yourself into this like perfect thing because that's not who you are. Because of course, if somebody reads your LinkedIn profile and then they meet you in real life, you want those two to jive. Yeah, that's the essence. And that's the essence of all good marketing, right? Right. Well, especially if you're looking for a job and you're using LinkedIn, you know, who you represent on your LinkedIn page, these recruiters know that you're going to obviously put your best foot forward, just like you do with a resume. But when they get you on the phone or a Zoom call or in person, they're going to want to make sure that they match. (laughs) 
So this is really interesting. And I think because of your background, again, with PR and in television before that, these principles that you're talking about are bigger than LinkedIn. In six months or a year or two years, there's going to be another something else. It's not exactly. going to be LinkedIn. Right. So at their essence, what do you think are the important things that people need to think about when they are presenting themselves? So first of all, think of it in a foundational standpoint. So LinkedIn is just a platform. You know, there's going to be another LinkedIn at some point or, you know what I mean, another type of something. I always let people know that when I work with them, I'm like, first, what we're going to do is we're going to do foundational work to identify your personal brand. All right. We're going to look at what's your unique value. What is it that you bring to your clients? What is the pain point you solve? How do you solve it? What's the benefit they're going to get from working with you or hiring you? So we do all that first. And then once we've kind of figured out what that is and what they stand for and how they want to sort of be a thought leader in their industry, then we figure out how we're going to write about them on their profile and how they're going to want to sort of position themselves online, but obviously offline. Again, LinkedIn's just the platform. I mean, how you're going to represent yourself online is also exactly how you should represent yourself when they meet you in person, virtually or otherwise. So the foundational work is really important. Some people hire business coaches, and so business coaches could probably give you insight into how they see you. You know, the other thing is that I actually suggest that people do, if you're okay, if I give you a quick example. Please do. When you're thinking about what you do for a living, we all have in our own mind what we're good at. But if you ask other people what we're good at, you might be surprised pleasantly by they might see some skill set in you that you never identified or one that you kind of put down here. So what I actually ask people to do is think of five people who are in your world that you trust, you know, not your spouse, but like whether it's a former client, a current client, a past manager, you know, anybody that's in your industry that you've worked with and say, listen, I'm really trying to figure out my personal brand, really figuring out how I want to position myself online and off. And I'm really kind of just sort of like wanting to look in the mirror and figure out like, what is it about me that is interesting or helps people? And just send them an email. Don't do this in person. Send it by email so that they can thoughtfully reply. And just say, like, when we work together on X project, what stood out? I think you'll be amazed. And then people are going to say, well, one of the things I loved about working with you is that your communication was that great, or you had incredible leadership ability. And all of these things will be a little bit of an aha to go, huh, I never thought about that. But if all these other people see this in me, then maybe I should be paying attention to this. So it's a kind of a way to look in the mirror, I guess, and kind of learn more about yourself in a way that maybe you hadn't thought of before. What do you think about the idea of crafting an aspirational picture of yourself versus what you are? So say all the feedback you get reflects certain areas of your ability that you're not interested in. I hadn't thought about that, but I would think that would be a really helpful exercise as well. It's almost like a personal mission statement. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Say somebody is looking to make a shift in their Mm -hmm. career, or maybe they feel they're a great writer, but they have always been pigeonholed as, you know, a manager or a coordinator or project manager. How do you feel about crafting that profile in a way that, again, is more aspirational? It's more the work they want to do. I'm trying to think. I've probably worked with some people who are in that place. I think usually what it is, is that when I interview them and do the personal interview and ask them about themselves, it's usually the story comes out in that interview and it's that story. And I'll say, "Hun, did you ever realize that maybe that piece of your story 
is the thing that's been driving you about this and that maybe it is completely different? Do you want to look out that window <laughs> instead? And a lot of times they'll be like, God, I never really thought about it. But yeah, and then they realize, wow, this has really shown up here. If you're bringing a skill set to a certain scenario in the workplace or in your business, but other people are seeing something else in you, pay attention to that because that could be very just revealing. That's a really good question. And it's a hard one to really kind of like give you a solid answer to say how to do that. Because I think you have to be pretty introspective, self-introspective to kind of play that out. But you know, if you are somebody who has your own business and you've worked with a business coach or a life coach or anything like that, some of the work you've done, even though a lot of that might feel transformational from a personal standpoint, I'll bet would be another lens into that aspirational side as well. And you know, there's two sides to that. I think there's also the people you see and not to be ageist, but you know, when you see the 20 year old who is putting themselves out there as a guru and you think it's very unlikely that your life experience justifies that and that's what they want to be. Right. There's right. the two sides of that, right? There's the side that I think you and I were talking about, somebody who's able to make a transition and doing that honestly. But there's mm -hmm. also a lot of this idea, you know, uh, fake it till you make it. Yeah, I do volunteer work with a nonprofit called the Honor Foundation, which it puts together a 13-week intensive professional development course for any men and women who have been in the military in the special operations in any branch of the military. So I work with a lot of army rangers, Navy SEALs, people like that who are either retiring or just ending. So they're literally transitioning from their active duty career into their civilian career. And so some of these people are in their 30s and some of these people are in their 50s and 60s. And so it's an interesting question because they've got the extra challenge of trying to figure out how you translate or transfer skills you learned in the military and how those can also be valuable in a civilian setting, right? That's not an easy thing to do. It's a very self-reflective process. And it's probably a process you need to, frankly, hire someone to help you do. It's hard to do by yourself. I think that certain people could sort of try this, but you know, other people who sort of have some tactics that could help you would help you tease it out. And that's why I enjoy doing what I do so much. It's almost like I get to be that broadcast journalist or I get to be that person behind the camera with the lens on the person because I can see this in them. I have the advantage of having fresh eyes, of looking at them and seeing something. And in the course of an interview, I can pick up on something they've said four times. And toward the end, they'll say, did you realize that you brought this up four times? And they're like, I did. And then when they realize it, they're sort of like, wow. You know, so, you know, you can't do these things alone. Even if you talk about it with a good buddy, you know, ask people, just ask people. I mean, I think we never ask people for help enough. That's a great point. So let me ask you, you referred to it before. We throw around the term story a lot. And there is the beginning, middle, end arc of a story. But do you think when you talk about someone's story, do you mean it that way? Or do you mean a sort of like their essence, their personality? How do you define story? I'm actually taking it pretty literally. Because again, I'm back to that piece I was talking about, like the summary, like what's going to be our lead? What's going to be our hook? Because whatever that hook is, is we want it to be something compelling and interesting so that people want to click on that little show more link to read the whole thing, right? So that's a literal translation. But it's also, if you go to an event and you're talking with somebody back to that little, you know, after hours drink thing, and somebody goes, you know, so have you been on vacation recently? I'd be like, oh yeah, I went on this. When you walk away from all the people you talk to in that room, I bet you anything you're going to remember the person who told you about their vacation to wherever 
versus the person that said, I work here and this is my job title. So it's the essence of the story for the purpose of grabbing someone's attention, but again, still being real. But it's also something that humanizes you. And whenever we make a connection to somebody that humanizes us, we are now relatable. And if we're going to also think about business, you know, you've got to relate to people, connect with them and get to know them first and build a relationship, which then hopefully, because you've built trust, then may lead to a transaction. But if you start out with a transactional kind of relationship first, I don't care what you do or where you are, that is just not going to work. And if it does work, then you're selling cars or something. I don't know. Not that there's anything wrong with selling Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, but I just mean, you still got to do this the old fashioned way, which is why I love the LinkedIn platform in some ways. It's still very analog. You still have to make relationships. I always say, if you're going to have your presence on LinkedIn, look at it as a slow dance. This takes some time. This is not something that's going to happen overnight. It's not Twitter. It's not Instagram. Less is more, which I love. But if you can make yourself relatable, then you're going to be positioning yourself to have more connections, more relationships, and ultimately more maybe business. You know, I mean, that's what we're going for, but do it in a way that feels good. What did you mean by less is more? So like for LinkedIn, for example, from a posting standpoint, let's say. So, you know, on Twitter, they would probably tell you to post 10 to 15 times a day, right? On Instagram, maybe, you know, every day or every three or four days a week. On LinkedIn, if you're posting like, you know, original content, like long form original content where you're of service to somebody, not like, oh, watch me on this podcast or see me on LinkedIn Live. If you're putting out stuff that's content of service to people in your industry a couple times a week, like on a Monday and a Thursday, not back to back, because you can actually, from an algorithm standpoint, you can compete with your own content and you don't want to do that. And people go to LinkedIn for long form content. They look for articles, they look for videos because they see that as a really valuable place to go for content from a professional standpoint. Whereas I post my LinkedIn lives, they're 30 to 40 minutes and I get a lot of viewership on the replays, not necessarily in live. And then on Facebook, if I post something there, somebody might see it, but they're probably only gonna watch five minutes of it. There's different sort of mentalities for each channel. And I just feel like LinkedIn is a less is more kind of place which I think makes it more conducive to wanting to be there because there's not so much pressure. Yeah. And I would imagine those of us that are using LinkedIn are, you know, have other things to do. Exactly. That's right. The, I idea. Mean, that's the, the people that's you the... want to connect with are the people that are not spending too much time there. Exactly. And, you know, if you stick with LinkedIn, you know, you, even if you get your settings, I mean, LinkedIn's algorithm changed in October. And so there's all these new things that are popping up now, but there used to be like, for example, in your privacy and settings, there used to be 80. That's a lot. There's now 200. Wow. If you go into your actual privacy and settings and you go through each tab for each section, so there's privacy, communications, notifications, and all of that stuff, everything is default set to on. So that's why a lot of people get so annoyed by LinkedIn. They're like, I don't care that somebody changed a job. I don't care about somebody's birthday. I deal with that on Facebook. You know, I don't want to know that somebody liked somebody else's thing. You can go in and set all those things up so that you can actually make the user experience much more the way you want it to be. And then you can start to see the value because the minute you set your privacy and settings where you want and you build connections, then your quality of the connections that come in are going to be much more relevant and aligned with what you do rather than just like people from all over the place that have nothing to do with your sphere. And I think that's where LinkedIn as a company falls short. I think if they gave people more information about some of these basics on how to make it a better user experience, 
I think that more people would be really excited about being there. So the hook thing is really interesting. I don't know if you listened to the interview with Bill Phillips, but he's got a magazine background and he had some really interesting insights into headlines. Oh. And I think it's so cool how valuable I think these varied journalism backgrounds turn out to be as content marketing becomes more and more important. Understanding how to tell a story, to give value to your audience, to do what he calls service journalism. And I think that applies. I've seen his LinkedIn posts, as you said, being of service to the audience. Mm -hmm. I've seen them do really well because, again, he's not saying, look at me, I did something cool. He's saying, here's some information that would be valuable. Mm -hmm. So having said all that, are there five or six things that people should be doing right now tactically to improve their own LinkedIn performance? Yes. So related to what you just said about Bill, lots of LinkedIn experts or whatever you want to call us. I mean, there's Instagram experts, there's Facebook experts. So there's a group of us who are like LinkedIn trainers and stuff like that. I know a lot around the world and there's one woman, she's literally got the handle at LinkedIn expert is Vivica Von Rosen, who's in Colorado. She's been an early adopter of LinkedIn since the beginning. And she always said, and a lot of people echo this, is when you're looking at your LinkedIn profile from a foundational standpoint, remember to look at yourself as a resource, not a resume. All right. So LinkedIn that. was admittedly a resume sort of job seeking service, but it's way beyond that now. So remember to see yourself as a resource and not a resume. And so if you look at your profile from the standpoint of like, how can I serve others, then you are going to really like up your experience. I'm going to follow up before you go on to your next okay. one. How does one do that? I know I talk to a lot of people and when I'm coaching them, they're wary of pontificating, you yeah. know, of sounding like a know-it-all. Are there tips for being Well, that's where storytelling comes in. So if you use story to demonstrate what you've done, then you're telling a story versus going, I know how to do and I'm the best at, because you're not going to say that. I mean, and if you are, I'm not going to want to connect with you. So it's literally, it's a mindset shift. You know, I even say like, one of the things somebody said to me when I was working with a business coach is like, I never wanted to call myself a LinkedIn expert because I felt that sounded braggy and boastful and all the other yucky things. But then I realized that when I was reading about the term expert, somebody wrote, and I can't remember who it was, it's basically said, you know what? There's nothing wrong with calling yourself an expert because an expert is someone who is always learning. And when I looked at it that way, I thought, oh, well, I am always learning. I mean, I read as much as I can. I read all the stuff that comes out from LinkedIn. I read about personal branding. I read books. I read everything. I'm like a sponge. And as long as I'm always learning and I'm staying up on what's new and different with LinkedIn, then I think it is okay that I call myself a LinkedIn expert. And I always say to myself, are there people who know more than me? Absolutely. Do I know more than some? Yes, I do. So I'm kind of somewhere in between and I'm okay with that. <laughs> so that's kind of a mindset shift. As far as like some tactical tips for your LinkedIn profile, I'm happy to, you know, provide a few. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. I got us off track, but yes, please. Okay, no problem. So one that people don't even realize is that when you sign up for a LinkedIn account, if you actually go into your personal profile page and you look up in the toolbar for the where the web address is, LinkedIn gives you like this linkedin.com slash in slash gobbledygook URL. Like it's your name with hyphens and then lots of numbers and letters. You can actually create a specific URL for your profile page. And so you do that from like, if you are in your profile page in the upper right corner, it says edit public profile URL. URL is the web address. So if you go in there to that, it'll show you what your existing one is. 
And so you can use like your first and last name. Mine is Kate Payne. And mine's Mad Motion. Yeah. So there you go. And so if you have a common name, like it's probably taken. And if it is taken, LinkedIn will say it's already taken. So you could do like first name, middle initial, last name. You could do first initial, middle initial, last name. But you want to do something. Sometimes people use their Twitter handle. I don't advise that because I usually say use your business name or use some variation on your name, like first name, last name, maybe the last two digits of your birth year or something like that. And so then you've got this nice, clean web address. You can use it on the signature of your emails, both personal and professional. On a business card, more and more people are including their LinkedIn URL on their business cards, on a resume, on a website, instead of what I call the gobbledygook URL. And it doesn't matter if you have a free account or premium, that's a free thing to be able to do. Everything I'm going to mention to you, actually, you can do whether you have free or premium. This is great. Um, Now we're holding you accountable. That's number one. What's number two? Let's see if we can get to five. All right. So number two is your profile photo. I'm sort of mentally thinking of your profile page. So the URL is at the top and then your profile photo. So some people don't put one in, not a good thing. Sometimes people put in their logo and LinkedIn does not allow you to use a logo on your personal profile page. It actually, again, goes against their terms of service. They can call you on it. They can shut your account down. There should be no more than one person in the profile photo. It should just be you. So I've seen a lot of people who are like our husband and wife teams, and they have a picture of the both of them. And I've actually told them you shouldn't. And LinkedIn doesn't want you to. Not you and your dog, not you and your cat. Like that's for Facebook or Instagram. A nice professional photo. You know, if you don't want to go out and have a professional headshot done, then just make sure it's nice and clean. Make sure you're looking at the camera, not off at the sky. And you've got a look that's just you. I mean, like if you don't smile a lot, then, you know, just kind of grin or something. But, you know, show your personality. Don't have a busy background and make sure it's well lit, you know, and that it's in focus. So that sounds obvious, but you'd be amazed at how many people don't pay attention to it. And that is your first impression. Like it or not, it's a first impression. And make it so that your profile photo is available to the public. Okay. Some people make it to like only their connections. But if you send an invitation to somebody and they don't see that you have a photo, sometimes people don't connect because they think it could be a fake profile. So having your photo show benefits you. Yeah. And I would say too, like many of, well, in the old days when I would meet people at conferences, many of my LinkedIn connections would be people I'd met in person. Yeah. And I would look for the photo to confirm that I had found the right person. Right. And you know what? You also bring up a good point. Use a current photo, not one of you 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, make sure that they can recognize you. So if they're going to meet you in a coffee shop, when we can go back to doing that, that you actually look like your photo. (laughs) Good point. Very Um, good point. Yeah. Again, though, but it is, it's a first impression thing. This is a professional network. And so like it or not, you need to be professional, but with a little hint of personal mixed in. Let's see. Oh, there's a brand new feature that came out probably July, August. It's called Featured. And it's in the middle of your profile page. If you don't see it, that means you haven't activated it. There's probably like this little line that says featured and it's probably got like this little dotted thing around it. And what you can do is you can feature your most recent post on LinkedIn. You can feature a web page. So you could put a link to your homepage. You can put up videos. You can have infographics, PDFs, presentations. If you have written LinkedIn articles on LinkedIn's publishing platform, you can feature those. So you can have as many as you want. But I always say, because of the way it works, technically, you sort of like click on this right arrow and it sort of slides like a carousel. I say six. So I have a couple that are evergreen, 
Like one's about like standing out online, like what I do. And another one is like when I was on a guest podcast for an industry expert in the digital marketing world. And then what I do is I change out my posts. If I do a LinkedIn live for my Coffee with Kate show, I'll feature the most recent interview from the previous week and I change it up. So they're really big graphics now. So it's like, let's face it, LinkedIn's pretty text oriented. There's not a lot of aesthetically pleasing graphics on LinkedIn. So this featured piece is a game changer. And it's a way for people to see content. And when they click on it, unlike the stuff in your contact information, when they click on it, it will directly take them there in one click to that asset versus two or three clicks in other places on the LinkedIn platform. So take advantage and show off your work. Again, let your work tell the story. And then I think a big tip is a lot of people don't think about asking for recommendations. And that's not the same as endorsements. Endorsements is the number. I don't care about that but ask people to give you a recommendation on LinkedIn and have them tell your story for you in their words about a certain skill set you have. Or when I worked with Marion, you know, I learned how to do, and she showed me how, you know, that kind of thing, instead of just Marion's great, you know, I mean, 10 recommendations of Marion is great, but it doesn't speak to any of the skill sets you have. So ask them if they'll speak to something specific so that people can really see the talent that you have. You think recommendations get looked at a lot on LinkedIn? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. It's almost like an in-depth client testimonial. But the other thing is people have to do them from their own account. That's another aspect of this is that the person who's going to give you a recommendation on LinkedIn, first and foremost, has to have a LinkedIn profile. When you ask them, and you should ask them in person or over the phone or by email, don't just send them the request through LinkedIn and say, listen, I'd really appreciate it if you'd be willing to write a recommendation for me. And they have to do it. You know, they may say, well, why don't you write one up for me and I'll take a look at it. And if you can just do it and email it to them and then they'll tweak it. But they still have to act by going into their own account, giving you the recommendation, and then it automatically populates in your profile. And also give recommendations. Give recommendations to people who you've really enjoyed with. Don't make it reciprocal. That's not what I'm saying. It's not a tit for tat. You know, be again, be authentic on that. Do you give unrequested recommendations just because you've enjoyed working with someone? I'm guilty. I should say I should. It's one of those things I'm meaning to do. And it's it's just like, you know how when somebody sends you an email and you want to reply thoughtfully and you're like, I'll reply tonight before I go to bed. And then three days later, it's like, ack, I haven't done it. So, you know, I admit that I do that too. But that is one of my goals now. I just hired a virtual assistant to help me with my social media. So now I can get back doing all those things that I want to do. And that's one of them is I would like to give recommendations for people that I've worked with, because it's nice courtesy. So before we close up, sometimes the ethical stuff comes up in the conversation, and sometimes we kind of tag it on at the end. And we've addressed it a little bit in terms of authenticity. But I think, especially with something like LinkedIn, there's a lot of people who are sort of new to the idea of marketing. This isn't something that they've been trained in. And what I see sometimes with people who are new to marketing is there certain temptations once they start to see things working, you know, particularly when I've worked with clients in terms of things like paid social media, where there's a lot of data that can be manipulated and abused. What do you see are the sort of dangerous temptations of this game? And what are your thoughts on that? What do you mean by dangerous temptations? So I don't know LinkedIn well enough, but I know, for example, doing paid social media on Facebook, for example, You know, you can target certain demographics and certain groups, and that's all fine. But there are always points where you see a line in terms of your ethics. 
that line between manipulation and persuasion. You know, marketing is persuasion to a certain degree, but there's a line between that and manipulation. For example, things like fear mongering or fear of missing out, how you can abuse those kinds of things. And maybe it's not specific to LinkedIn. Maybe it's things that you've seen in your PR career in terms of, I feel like once people dip a toe into the world of how they present themselves publicly and they start to see the power of it, but they don't know kind of where those lines are. Is that something you see? Does that make sense to you? So I don't see it happening on LinkedIn as much as I see it happening elsewhere. So first of all, from an ad standpoint, you can buy LinkedIn ads, but LinkedIn ads compared to like Facebook ads are incredibly expensive. So if you ever notice in your feed for sponsored ads, the ads are primarily coming from big companies and big businesses. Like even though I'm Kate Payne and I do LinkedIn stuff, there's no way I could afford to do LinkedIn advertising. So in some ways that's kind of good because then you're not getting as many of the gurus or the people who think they know this being persuasive in your feed like you do on maybe Facebook, for example, or Instagram even. And I'm not a big Instagram user. So on LinkedIn, you don't see that as much. I still believe that LinkedIn is, and I I really hope that it stays this way, is that you really do have to work at it to create relationships and be trustworthy. I mean, all of us have heard building the know, like, and trust factor, right? To attribute that to Bob Berg, who's a famous, you know, marketing author. So you want to do business with and refer business to those people you know, like, and trust. So you really need to take that seriously. Again, being of service, like if you are sharing everything you know about your expertise in your certain industry, and you are sharing that without any strings attached, then you don't need to worry about that. If you are putting just a little bit out there because you're hoping you're going to hook somebody to like hire you to come back to learn more of it, people will see through that like nobody's business on LinkedIn and they will call you out on it. If you get political on LinkedIn, everybody will say, hey, take your opinions about the presidential election to Facebook and Twitter. doesn't belong here. So the users of LinkedIn are not tolerant of that kind of stuff. That doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. I mean, I think there are all people in any industry who go above it too far and they start to have too much power and then maybe they go overboard. But one of the things I've seen generally, for the most part, is that when you talk to a thought leader on LinkedIn, They will almost always be very generous and reply to you in public or send you a direct message or offer to help you or make a connection. And that's why I still really like this platform. In fact, what I say at my presentations is all people say, well, I haven't done much social media, so I'm not sure about LinkedIn. And I'll say, well, frankly, LinkedIn isn't technically social media. You know, it's not where you show pictures of your kids, what you ate for breakfast or your dogs, unless you're a teacher, a chef or a vet. You know, so if you're not real on LinkedIn, you're going to get called out on it. I love that. That's great. I I don't know if that addresses what you were saying, but no, that's great. I think it's safer. That's why I say the less is more. And I think people will start to like be like, you know what? I think I could look at LinkedIn a little bit differently now. And what you're saying basically is that the business population that's on LinkedIn is not falling for that baloney, that it's not effective there. You know, I'm still a news junkie. I do a lot of reading and I read a lot of different things and I read it every day and I look at stuff on TV and I watch stuff online. I haven't seen anywhere near the stuff that happens everywhere else on LinkedIn during this incredible year, with regardless of how you think about things. I haven't seen anywhere near that. And if I have, people have been called out on it. And it's interesting. Like I just, it has not been in any way I walk away going, oh God, now it's on LinkedIn. You know, I haven't had that kind of a reaction. And believe me, I pay attention. 
<laughs> That's great. Well, let me ask you this. How can people find out about you? Well, they can certainly find me on LinkedIn. <laughs> so feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know you heard me on uh, Marion's Grounded Content Podcast. So it's linkedin.com slash in slash Kate Payne, K-A-T-E-P-A-I-N-E. Or you can reach me through email for my business, which is standingoutonline.com. And so my email is Kate, K-A-T-E at standingoutonline.com. Well, this is great, Kate. Thank you. It was great. Should I have asked you anything else? I don't think so. I think we've probably covered quite a bit. But I'm always open to questions. If anybody has any questions about like, oh, my LinkedIn's shut down or I've got three accounts because I used to work at these two other places, you know, message me on LinkedIn and I'm happy to help. I'm not tech support, just so you know but I can at least give you some guidance. (laughs) That's great. That's great. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Grounded Content Podcast, where advertising, marketing, and content get real. I truly appreciate you. As I begin to build this new podcast, I'd love to hear your feedback. You can find me at MadMotion almost anywhere. It's my username on Clubhouse, on Twitter, on Instagram, and my website is madmotion.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.